From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, August 15th. I'm Marco Werman. Kids who came to the U.S. illegally don't have to live in the shadows anymore. Starting today, they can apply for work permits and avoid deportation. It's not citizenship, but this 18-year-old says it's still a big moment. It's, you know, the first step towards really owning my American dream. And later, a slang used by Britain's gay community decades ago. Oh, hello, love to see you. Bona tavardi, you dolly oldie. That's nice to see your pretty face in Polari. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's a big day for undocumented immigrants in the U.S., though not exactly the one they were waiting for. Starting today, those between the ages of 15 and 31 can apply to live and work openly here without fear of being deported. That's due to an executive order issued by President Obama in June. The new rule could affect an estimated 1.7 million people. The world's Jason Margolis spoke with a few of them today. About 40 people crammed into a small room in downtown Boston for sort of a hybrid press conference and workshop. Speakers were providing details about the new policy. 20-year-old Isabel Vargas started off the event. If I cry, just let it be. (laughs) Cry with me, too. Um, My parents brought me here from the Dominican Republic when I was 8 years old with my sister. Many people in the room were emotional. I know that... If my life is going to change from here on, I'm going to be able to go to law school if I want to one day, be a lawyer that to defend all my fellow undocumented students. The new rule that makes this possible is called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. People here refer to it as DACA for short. Attorney Nancy Kelly with Greater Boston Legal Services explained the basics. You have to have arrived in the United States before you were 16 years of age. You have to be under 31 years of age. Applicants also need to have completed high school or currently be enrolled or have served in the U.S. military. They also must have spent the past five years in the U.S. Applicants must be able to document this, and they have to be in good standing with the law. They will do a fingerprint check on everybody, and you will be disqualified if you have a felony on your record or you have more than three misdemeanors. If they qualify, they'll be given two years of de facto residency. They can reapply when the term expires. I sat down with Carlos Rojas, an 18-year-old high school graduate. He moved to the United States from Colombia when he was five. He says his mom brought him here to escape the violence in his country. When making the decision to come to the United States, my mother first went to the embassy to see if she could legally enter the United States. For anyone who's tried to do that, you would know that Unless you have family members that are already U.S. citizens here in the United States, unless you have connections, 
or unless you are a doctor or a scientist or a lawyer, there's basically no way that you will be given papers. So um, we had neither of those things. So my mother decided to come on a visa, um, which we had for six months and which we obviously um, overstayed. So after six months of being here, we became undocumented. Many people like Rojas were hoping for a comprehensive immigration reform bill passed by Congress. They lobbied vigorously for the so-called DREAM Act. That would have put young people like Rojas on a path to citizenship. That's not what is being offered today. The new rule is essentially saying you can stay temporarily, but that's it. Rojas said he and many others like him have mixed feelings about what's on offer. You know, deferred action... Although it's not everything, it's not citizenship, it's not amnesty, it's actually rather a limited range of benefits. It's, you know, the first step towards really owning my American dream. For him, that means being able to go to work legally and save money for college. There are many who argue the new rule already gives illegal immigrants like Rojas too much, that he's being given a free pass for breaking the rules. You know, I make no apology for my family being here uh, We've contributed economically. We've contributed to taxes. Morally, um, we've never gotten in trouble with the law. We've been here for 13 years. So what do you think about uh, the Republicans who say that President Obama just did this as an an election year tactic to try and appeal to Hispanic voters, and this is a cynical ploy by him? What, What is your reaction to that? They're partly right was definitely a political tactic. It's near election time. The Hispanic vote is an incredibly important vote. So it it is definitely beneficial for him in terms of elections. Do you think the Latinos are going to vote for Obama, more likely to vote for him now because of this? Yes. There is no doubt that yes. <laughs> Rojas added that his community is also well aware that President Obama has deported more people than any president in history. But he still thinks that President Obama is their best chance for working toward comprehensive immigration reform in the next four years. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis in Boston. So some young immigrants in this country are breathing a sigh of relief, while in France today, immigrants and their families in the town of Amiens are tense. That's after several days of rioting and clashes between youth and police. Young people burned cars and buildings. Seventeen police officers were injured. French journalist and political commentator Christine O'Krent says Amiens is a pressure cooker for disenfranchised youth without jobs or opportunities. She explains how a traffic accident escalated over the past few days. A young guy got killed in a motorbike incident. There was a mourning ceremony for him. And then the police, for some reason or another, went into that neighborhood and some young people started aiming at them, first of all with stones, and then some rifles showed up and uh, the police were shot at. Two schools were burned, a few cars also. Police people were wounded. The Home Secretary went there yesterday and had the usual statement saying that, of course, it was intolerable that the police would be shot at anywhere. But it's a mix, unfortunately, of racial tension, unemployment, a lot of frictions between various communities. And the the great difficulty, which I believe we know in the U.S. as well as in Europe, about what to do Mm. with idle youth who get violent. And even in Europe, where 
guns are prohibited, they get these guns right. and they use them. Well, complicating matters, too, is that this violence falls in the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. And I heard that the police actually have been kind of camping out in Amya, waiting for something to happen, which has to raise the tension. Well, Amya has been listed as one of the 15 most dangerous places in France for that kind of incidents to happen. And the government had just announced that there would be police reinforcement in Amiens, as well as in 14 other spots in the country, because it has been detected by the local authorities that indeed these ingredients are there for any incident to get from bad to worse, which is exactly what happened. Many people say Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was president, did very little to solve the root problems that led to those infamous 2005 riots. Has the new president, François Hollande, he's been in office only 100 days, has, has he offered any plan to improve housing conditions, education and, and jobs for these disenfranchised youth? You know, frankly, given the state of, of our economy and the, the sort of recession hitting Europe right now, whether you have conservatives in the government or, or socialists, as is the case with President Hollande, the remedies are not obvious and no one has a magic wand and there's no way to create thousands of interesting jobs for these kids overnight. And I think that any government, whatever its political leanings, faces the same issues of feeling rather powerless. French journalist and political analyst Christine Okren. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. Even when immigrants are settled in a country for generations, that doesn't mean they necessarily feel accepted. The recent shooting at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin has left many in and outside the Sikh community wondering about their place in America. As a Muslim, I support Sikh unity. As an American, I'm gracious for what the Sikhs have done for me. But most importantly, as a human being, I see a horrible tragedy which will always remain. But I hope those listening will spread the message of peace from terrain to terrain to ensure that those who died on August 5th did not die in vain. Zaki Syed is the rapper behind the spoken word tribute to the victims of the Sikh temple. He joins us from Sacramento, California. Zaki, how soon after the shootings at the temple did you write this rap? I wrote it almost immediately. We found out about the Sikh temple shooting. Uh, I'm not Sikh, but I have a lot of Sikh friends. After 9-11, I got bullied a lot because I'm Muslim, and the Sikh students uh, at my school protected me, and they took me in as one of their own. Um, and throughout the years, I was able to go to their temples and religious gatherings, spend nights at their house. They cooked me food. So when this happened, I really felt like I had to give back to the Sikh community. So I was very passionate I was so, like, uh, troubled by what happened that I immediately uh, wrote the lyrics. So it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. And I didn't have a lot of money, so I felt this was the only way I could really help and use the talent of rap. You know, for the video for your spoken word tribute, uh, you've got this powerful photo of a sick doctor. He's in camouflage, and even his turban is camouflage. He's in a U.S. military operating room taking care of a soldier. It it kind of coincides with a, a line from your rap where you're targeting the media for stereotypes about... Sikhs and Muslims. I mean, how have you felt that as a Muslim? Well, I think the media has always stereotyped, made a stereotype that anyone who has a beard, who has a turban, uh, must be a terrorist. That's very untrue. In fact, most Muslims don't even have uh, turbans. So the purpose of putting that picture was showing that Sikhs people are also part of society. They're soldiers. They serve the United States Army. They're our friends. They're on our side. They're not against us. They're working with us. And this is 
the way they dress is just a religious and cultural thing. It has nothing to do with their loyalty to uh, their country. So I'm curious to know what has been the reaction from Six here and abroad to your song? So when I did this, uh, I performed live at the Sacramento Capitol. The reaction from Six was very, very positive. They they really were proud of me. They felt like I was bringing Sikhs and uh, Muslims together. But most of all, the Sikh community has been extremely supportive in this rap. In fact, it was my Sikh friends that put those videos and those images together. I wrote the lyrics, but they helped me with mm. everything else. So very, very supportive. And they've encouraged me to continue my work and to educate people about what Sikhism is and how loyal and friendly uh, Sikh people are. So overall, it's been very, very good. You know, going back to 9-11, when you first found that affinity with the Sikh community, you were 13 years old. Now you're 24. You're getting your master's in sociology at Sacramento State. As a student of sociology, how optimistic are you that in the aftermath of tragic shootings like those in Wisconsin, a dialogue can get going? I'm, I'm optimistic. I feel like I hate for a tragedy to ever bring about good things, but I feel like it can open up a dialogue. This is not the first time Sikhs have been uh, targeted because of hate crimes. It's happened numerous times before. I've known numerous people it's happened to. About a year ago, two people were shot in uh, Elk Grove, which is close to Sacramento. So it's common, but I feel like this brings awareness to the fact that Sikh people have been uh, targeted because of hate crimes. So it hopefully brings up the dialogue and people can see and understand that uh, Sikh people are friendly people. It brings awareness. So many rappers in recent years have, you know, sort of moved away from the social message of hip-hop and rap. Who are your role models in the rap world, Zaki? Uh, my role model right now is uh, Immortal Technique mm. um, because he's always uh, trying to encourage people not to stereotype based on religion. Um, another person I really like is uh, Lupe Fiasco. He's also uh, talked about how rap is going towards the wrong way and he's trying to bring it towards a positive message. But I got to say Immortal Technique is still my uh, favorite of all time. Zaki Syed, rapper and sociology student at Sacramento State. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. All I see is the greatness of love. Faces of love still rising above. It's insane that the media complains but still constantly puts stereotypes in our brains. But all I see is the greatness of love. Faces of love still rising above. Yeah, all I see is the greatness of love. Yeah, this is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by the investment firm of Raymond James, Wealth Management, Bank and Capital Markets. Details on finding a local advisor at LifeWellPlanned.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The hyper-secret world of Apple inspires rumors, especially about new products like the much-anticipated iPhone 5. That's expected to be introduced in September. So when the tech press started chewing over rumors of an unusual screw being designed by Apple, few questioned it. But it turns out to be a hoax. It included a fake photo attached to a bogus email. The guy behind the rumor and the email was Lucas Lindell. He's CEO of Day4, a Swedish digital communication company in Stockholm. So, Lucas, in a way, this isn't surprising in the Internet age. But what's really extraordinary is how little information you provided to the story. You uploaded this image of this asymmetrical screw with the ambiguous sentence, a friend took a photo a while ago at that fruit company. And uh, they, they are obviously even creating their own screws. What were some of the really amazing headlines that you saw that people just kind of elaborated on this one line you threw out there? 
Well, there was lots of talking about top secret screw that would screw the users and uh, the very incredibly complex screw, which amuses me because it's really not that complex. It's just a stupid design, actually. And uh, I've been wondering all day since I came across this story why you chose to punk the world with a story about a fake screw. Was it for the obvious metaphor? No, really not. That's uh, something we understand afterwards. It only took about 12 hours for people to go for the bait. Why did you do this? Well, we're pretty active in social media in our uh, company, and we often get facts from people in discussions. You know, 50% of this is like that and so on. But very rare people has a source for their facts. So uh, we wanted to try to see how much of the information that flows on the internet is really true. And uh, it's really this easy to create this rumor. Mm. And if we can do it, I mean, probably lots of other people can do it as well. What, was anyone skeptical about what you had kind of presented? Yeah, many people were. And I'm really proud uh, of the media because almost every blog or big news media, they really said this is an unconfirmed uh, rumor. We don't know if it's true or anything. But uh, in the next step with the people that read the articles and started to discuss it in social media like Twitter and Google+. So they were talking about it as a fact. In other words, the, the mainstream media did question the accuracy, but the blogosphere did not. They kind of just went for the bait. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is harder than ever to know what's truthful and real on the old internet. How do you get people in the blogosphere who are not, you know, professional uh, okay. journalists or, or researchers to be more accurate about what they state and restate? It's impossible to go to the bottom with everything and really know the source. But uh, is this reasonable to be true? Why would this be true? Mm. And, uh, and so on. And that was a discussion about the screw. Because many people stated this screw is very impractical. It's not a good screw. It's really a bad design. And that's a big reason to not believe it. Because we know Apple do really great designs. And this screw is, on the contrary, really bad. So that should be kept in people's mind when they read about stuff. Is this reasonable? Lucas Lindell is the head of Day 4, a Swedish communications company based in Stockholm. He and his company are behind the hoax story about a specially designed screw by Apple. Lucas, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Want to see that specially designed screw? We have a photo at theworld.org. We say a real goodbye to that story, and we begin our next item with this way of saying hello. Bona tavada, you dolly old eek. That means nice to see your pretty face in Polari. Polari is a slang with roots in the British theater, and for decades it was a secret code for Britain's gay community. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. Clayton Littlewood has written a number of books about London's Soho neighborhood, in particular its gay community. He remembers, for instance, sitting in a coffee shop with an elderly gay man, watching the world go by. And he said, oh, Vardy the Eek, dear, don't tell me you haven't seen her. She's been trolling round here for years, she has. Years she's been trolling round here, fiddling with the basket. That's Polari. Here it means, look at that face. Don't tell me you haven't seen him. Her means him. He's been walking around here for years. I'll leave the explanation of fiddling the basket to Clayton. I suppose you could uh, <laughs> describe that as adjusting his lower anatomy while he's walking down the street. Now, Polari isn't a fully functioning language. It doesn't have a grammar or a comprehensive vocabulary. Instead, it's a slang, a code, a kind of substitution language in which you can drop in certain words in place of others. It uh, dates back to something called thieves' cant. So you, basically all the thieves could talk to each other in a language that would mean they weren't understood. This is Christopher Bryant. He's the editor of Polari magazine, which covers gay culture in Britain. And 
this really developed into Polari in the 19th century. Um, it was called Pagliari then, and it was uh, based in Italy, and all the, all the circus folk would use it. The slang remained popular in British theatre into the 20th century, used by straight and gay alike. But Polari became something more, a necessity for Britain's gay community after the Second World War. Homosexual acts were illegal in England until 1967, and the post-war period was particularly oppressive. A lot of this was actually influenced by the Americans. They were, they were telling Churchill that homosexuals were a security threat and that there needed to be a clamping down. And as this culture of clamping down happened, so Polari flourished because it became dangerous to be openly gay. Polari was a private language that gay men could use in public without fear. But for all its seriousness back then, says Bryant, Polari is a bit like Californian Valley Girl speech. It's exclusive, playful, and inventive. Some words are just regular words spoken backwards. Hair would be raya, face would be ecaf. Or eek for short. Others come from French or Italian or Yiddish. Words combine to make new definitions, so instead of saying your eyes, you say your ogles and proceed from there. Your ogle fakes are your glasses, and your ogle shades are your sunglasses, and your ogle rye fakes are your false eyelashes, and your ogle riders are your eyebrows. Hello, anybody there? Hello, I'm Julian, and this is my friend Sam. Oh, hello! But it was a 1960s radio show that made Polari famous. Mr. Orn, come in, troll round. The show was Round the Horn, broadcast by the BBC on Sunday evenings. Round about tea time, and the whole nation would listen to it. This is British actor David Benson. It starred Kenneth Williams, who was given full reign to use his wonderful vocal uh, gymnastics in all these characters that he played. Those, with another performer, included Julian and Sandy, the owners of Bona Books. Today we'd say they were flamboyantly camp characters, very likely gay characters. But not then. They were just, well, funny characters. On this occasion, paraphrasing the Seven Ages of Man speech from As You Like It. All the world's a stage, and all the omies and palones merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. That's true, Mr. Orn. We all, now we all have our exits and our entrances. Oh, every one of us. Well, I know I do. Yeah. So the British public were listening to Polari, and it was often very rude, and I think the audience kind of knew it was rude, but they didn't necessarily know specifically what these words meant. For years, David Benson has played Kenneth Williams in an acclaimed one-man show. Oh, hello, I love to see you. Boner to vow to your dolly old eek, dear. Oh, it's an out. But he's relieved that Polari isn't necessary any longer. Languages, he says, are better when they're commonly understood, when they bridge communities, not keep them apart. Polari now is fun. It's purely a celebration of a lost culture. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant, London. By the way, Alex asked David Benson and others if they knew whether there was an equivalent to Polari for gay women. They didn't know, but if you do, let us know. You can post your comment at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, a singer from the island of Borneo makes her name on YouTube. I used to write five songs a day, and all the songs that are on YouTube were just fresh out of the oven. They were written maybe about ten minutes to half an hour before I posted them. 
GRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Sixty-seven years ago today, Japan surrendered, finally ending World War II. This was how the BBC delivered the news. This is London. The Prime Minister, the Right Honorable C.R. Apte. Japan has today surrendered. The last of our enemies is laid low. Japan's empire was dismantled, but Japan did not give up its claim to a group of uninhabited islands in the East China Sea. And now those islands are the epicenter of a fierce diplomatic spat between China and Japan. Fourteen pro-China activists were arrested today by Japan after some of them landed on the islands and planted the Chinese flag. China is demanding their release. Mary Kay Magsat is the world's Beijing correspondent. Mary Kay, first, a, a tricky question. Who is in the right here, Japan or China? Well, it depends who you ask. From the Japanese perspective, the islands are Japan's and they've been under Japan's control pretty much consistently since 1895, except immediately after World War II, when actually they were administered by the United States. The U.S. handed back administration of the islands to Japan in 1971. China, on the other hand, looks at the islands, which Japan calls the Senkaku Islands and China calls the Diaoyu Islands, as islands that are within China's purview and, and have been Chinese territory, the Chinese say, since the 14th century, if not before. But China's claim is based on the fact that these islands were mentioned in Chinese writings and literature as far back as the 14th century. You know, it comes down to the question of just because you say something's yours, does it mean that it really is? Um, and if you say you've discovered these islands, does it mean that you really discovered them or just that you happened to notice them and others in the area also did and considered them either international territory or perhaps even belonging to someone else? All right. So as we pointed out today, marks the anniversary of Japan's surrender in World War II. Uh, d- did the Chinese activists land on these islands because of that date? Uh, is Japan trying to flex its muscle because of that date? What's the what's the connection? Well, I think Japan knows better than to try to flex its muscles on the day marking the anniversary of its surrender in World War II. Japan has gone to great lengths over the course of the last few decades to reach out to powers in the region, including China, to offer aid, to uh, more than once to apologize for what happened during World War II. And both China and South Korea uh, have said multiple times they don't think Japan has done enough. I think in the case of the activists, it's not the first time by any means that pro-China activists from Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China have tried to plant a flag on these islets. Um, It's actually just five little islets or pieces of rock uh, and a few extra pieces of rock in this area. It may well be that they decided that this was a particularly good time because of the anniversary. Was it inevitable, though, that if pro-Chinese activists landed on these islets, planted a flag, they would be arrested by Japan? Yeah, Japan has said this will happen. These are ours. This isn't even a dispute. We're not willing to engage in this as a dispute. Um, So if anyone comes within our territorial waters, we will arrest them. And in fact, the activists said that while in the past, 
when they've tried to do this. Japanese Coast Guard ships have given them warnings when they were 20 or 30 nautical miles offshore from the islands. This time it was 50 nautical miles offshore. And the Japanese Coast Guard ships were even firing water cannons at them, but they managed to break through and make it to the islets anyway. What is the deal with these activists? Could they have done this on their own without uh, any approval, tacit or otherwise, of the Chinese authorities? That's a really good question. Um, I think the Chinese authorities like to maintain a certain amount of deniability with this and with other sorts of situations where they can say, well, these are just patriotic citizens who are asserting uh, China's right over this territory. And it's a tragedy of history that we don't control this outright at this point. But when you look at how China acts in, for instance, the South China Sea, which adjoins the East China Sea where this is happening, there are often Chinese fishing boats, and the Chinese government will say, well, these are just ordinary fishermen. But when the fishing boats are captured by the Filipinos or the Vietnamese who claim those waters and you know whose actual shoreline is much closer to the point where the fishing boats are, you see a lot of, t- a lot of equipment on board that suggests that these are not ordinary fishermen, that they you know, had another mission in mind when they were in these waters to try to claim territory for China. Is it just pride at stake here, or are there any valuable minerals or oil reserves beneath these islets and the surrounding waters? There are believed to be considerable oil and gas reserves beneath and around these islets, um, which is one reason why China is particularly interested in asserting its claims to this area. So how would you expect a diplomatic flare-up like this to, to conclude? How, how serious could it get? Well, let's look back a couple of years, um, almost exactly two years ago, a Chinese fishing boat collided with a Japanese um, Coast Guard boat. In fact, the Japanese say that the Coast Guard boat was rammed. And the Japanese um, arrested the captain and the crew uh, and took into its possession the trawler. And the Chinese were very bellicose in response. They made a number of threats. So it, it can get quite tense. The world's Mary Kay Mag said, thank you so much. Thank you. Here's one claim that China would probably love to give up someday, the world's largest source of greenhouse gases. Most of that climate-altering pollution comes from coal. Now China is hoping to swap at least some of that coal for natural gas derived from the process known as fracking. The controversial gas drilling technology has been credited with bringing a flood of cheaper and cleaner fuel to the U.S. and elsewhere, but it's also brought its own big environmental concerns. Now, as Ruth Morris reports from Shanghai, China is taking its first cautious steps into the fracking boom. On Shanghai's Wangpu River, a barge chugs upstream, hauling coal to one of the power plants that keeps this city booming. China's the world's biggest energy guzzler, and it gets three-quarters of its power from coal. But coal is one of the dirtiest fuels around. It's the main reason so many of China's cities are choked with smog and why China is now the world's biggest greenhouse gas polluter. Bill Dotson is an energy analyst and author of the book China Fast Forward. One of the disappointments in China's rapid development is that it chose to use technologies that are about 200 years old. But these days, China's scrambling to find newer and cleaner technologies and it thinks it's found a promising one in hydraulic fracturing or fracking. Fracking is a relatively new way of getting at cleaner burning natural gas. It uses pressurized water and chemicals to fracture soft-shell rock deep underground and pump out natural gas trapped inside. The technology is revolutionizing energy markets and helping gas take a big bite out of coal use in the United States. We like to repeat the same 
successful story in China. Yang Fuchang is with the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, in Beijing. He says China's already making big strides in pollution-free power sources like wind and solar, but they're still likely to provide only 15% of China's energy by 2020. That is、uh, not enough. So I think another way is to develop a more natural gas and shale gas. China has huge untapped shale gas deposits, and supporters hope they can be a bridge between coal and broader use of renewables. The country's drilled several dozen trial wells, and in March, state-owned PetroChina signed its first production agreement with Shell. China has also invited other global energy players to bring in their technology and expertise, but no one's sure the investment will pay off. There's no guarantee that the technologies will be suitable for China. Tao Wang is a scholar at Beijing's Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Much of China's shale may be difficult to fracture. It also tends to be under rugged and remote terrain. So Tao says people are quite cautious about what we can get out from the fracking technologies. Then there are perhaps more formidable challenges. Fracking requires huge amounts of water, and that's a big concern in a place like China. This song, "The Yellow River Is Dry," laments an age-old problem here that's only getting worse. It's just the reality that China doesn't have enough water. Energy analyst Bill Dotson says fracking would have to compete for ever scarcer water supplies with industry, agriculture, and growing cities. But others say that's not a deal breaker. There's the technologies available that you can recycle the water. Ming Sung is a former chemical engineer for Shell, who's now with the Clean Air Task Force. He's cautiously optimistic about the environmental benefits of fracking. He says recycling could help mitigate the water use problem. Researchers also are looking into chemical alternatives to water, but that gets at another concern about fracking. Opponents say chemicals used in fracking pose a hazard to drinking water. And then there's concern about leaks of methane into the atmosphere. Ming Sung of the Clean Air Task Force says such leaks could undermine one of fracking's major benefits. As methane leaks, the potential damage as a greenhouse gas is twenty some to hundred times worse than CO2. All of these environmental concerns have led to a significant public backlash against fracking in the U.S. The NRDC's Yang Fuchang says many Chinese environmental groups still don't know much about the technology, but it's just a matter of time before they learn. And China's environmental movement is becoming more assertive. This protest in Qidong in July targeted plans for a new wastewater pipeline. Authorities scrapped the project the very same day. For now, at least, the government has modest hopes for fracking. Its targeted shale gas production will cover just two or three percent of the country's energy needs by 2020. But like so much else in China these days, the energy picture is changing fast, and what happens with fracking here could ultimately have a major impact around the world. For the world, I'm Ruth Morris, Shanghai. In Warsaw, Poland, there's a cemetery where many of the country's most famous poets and thinkers are buried. The grounds are covered by marble monuments, but in one corner there's an unmarked gravesite, and right now an exhumation is underway in that corner. There lie the remains of about a hundred people executed by the communists who took power in Poland after World War II. One of those buried there is believed to be Witold Pilecki. He's not well known here, but he's a hero in Poland. 
Michael Shudrick is the chief rabbi of Poland. Uh, rabbi Shudrick, first of all, who was uh, Witold Pilecki? Witold Pilecki was a hero because he, he asked to be smuggled into the Auschwitz death camp. While, you know, everyone else in Europe was trying to avoid being sent to Auschwitz, this man said, you know, someone's got to get inside and see what's really happening. Right. So who was he and why did he want to do that? He was an officer in the Polish army, in the Polish military, which was defeated by the, the German Nazis in September of 39. And then uh, he did it because he thought that was the right thing to do. I mean, I don't know if we know that much in his heart of hearts why he did it, but it seemed that it was the right thing to do. Someone had to go in there to be able to come out to say to the world, this is what's happening in Auschwitz. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary how he got himself in there. He essentially got himself arrested. I mean, but once in Auschwitz, the details are amazing. He he and some others who were also trying to foment dissent inside the death camp actually built a radio to communicate with the outside. How did they do that? How do you do something like that in a place like Auschwitz? Um, with great difficulty. Uh, they, because there were workshops, because the... the the Germans were, were, were first and foremost using Auschwitz as a, an extermination camp, as a, as a mass factory for murder and genocide, but they were also using it for industry. And therefore, those who were able to get themselves placed into one of the, the, labor, uh, the labor section of the camp had access to things that eventually could make something like a radio. So you, people actually did have access to such things that could make a radio. So the problem was not having access to the materials. The problem was getting them out of the factory, which was at, at, at risk of life. I mean, we should recall, too, that there was a lot of uncertainty all over the world about what Auschwitz actually was. Was it a prison? Was it some kind of industrial site? Was it Witold Pilecki who essentially informed the world that this is a death camp, that this is death at an industrial scale? One of those. He was one of those people that were able to go in and out and then to tell the world what was there. He wasn't the only one, but he certainly was one of the key people. And in 1943, he managed miraculously to escape from Auschwitz. But his story didn't end there. I mean, he, he was a hero to many, but then he was arrested by the communists in 1947. Can you tell us why? Right. And basically because he was part of the anti-communist um, front, the Polish anti-communist front. Uh, the, the Polish communists arrested him and then eventually killed him. And this is you know, just you know, a horrible thing that, you know, here is a hero that risk of life survived the German Nazis only to be eventually, eventually just a few years later, murdered by, by communists. So this is a man that, that truly fought, you know, both extremes of totalitarianism and uh, must be regarded as a hero, both as a, a Nazi fighter and as a communist fighter, you know, fighting against the Nazis and fighting against the communists. So now there's an effort to identify Pilecki's remains. Who's leading this effort, and, and why are they doing it? Well, it's being done by people in Poland, and I think it's in order to give proper respect. You know, for me, the greatest form of respect is for us remembering, you know, what he did, what he wrote. Very important that his diary has now been published in English, which will get out the word, you know, let people make it more accessible to many more people. But certainly I think the people that are looking now to identify his remains are also want to be able to do it to show him greater respect. Michael Shudrick, Chief Rabbi of Poland, thank you very much for telling us the story. Thank you so much. This is PRI.
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We travel to Southeast Asia now for our GeoQuiz. We're looking for one of the 13 states that make up the country of Malaysia. It's home to an increasingly popular world music festival. About 30,000 people attended the event this summer. That's where 26-year-old Malaysian native Z Avi had a homecoming of sorts. Avi's songs caught on with a worldwide audience nearly five years ago after she posted them on YouTube. Can you guess the name of this state that's part of Borneo? We're not giving you much time for it. So my love, I call you. And time is up. We were looking for the Malaysian state of Sarawak. It's on the northwest side of the island of Borneo, and it is the largest state in Malaysia. Its capital is Kuching. And that's where Zia V recently performed at the Rainforest World Music Festival. And it's where reporter Maria Bacalapolo caught up with the singer to talk about her journey to the big time. And now, our next performer is a special guest. Life often changes quickly, sometimes dramatically. On the tree stage, Z Avi! Avi's life was altered forever in 2007 after promising a friend that she'd share some of her music with him on YouTube. I shot like just half of my face because he already knows how I look like. So it was just half of my face, my singing chin and my guitar and that first song was Poppy. And then the next thing I know, the next day I got 30 views. I was like, wow, where did these people come from? And then I posted another video And I kept posting more videos and posting more videos and more people started leaving comments. And, you know, I was like, far out. (laughs) This is crazy. She was eventually featured on YouTube's homepage and the views skyrocketed, reaching the million mark. She became a YouTube sensation and soon found herself obsessed. I used to write five songs a day. And all the songs that are on YouTube were just fresh out of the oven. They were written maybe about 10 minutes to half an hour before I posted them. You know, back then, YouTube was just starting out, and, you know, that was my home for a while. Her inbox started to fill with offers from record labels and management agencies. And then about four or five days after I got featured, I got this inbox that said, uh, Hi, my name is so-and-so from Monotone Management. We manage the White Stripes. What? MIA. What? The Shins. Huh? You know? And all these great bands that I'm a big fan of. And I said, all right. We exchanged information and then they called me. 
first you were like, wow, your English is so good. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, thanks. It's Sesame Street. Ziavi moved to America and away from the shelter of her family's home to record in a professional studio. Her music is simple and sweet, about young love and nature. Being here in Borneo brings back memories of the simplicity that inspires her. Back then, I didn't grow up in a household where I had video games or anything like that. Um, we played outside, you know, my cousins and I, and I lived five minutes away from the South China Sea, and we went there every day. My dad made it a point to take me to the beach every evening. Um, that was my backyard, too. She also reflects about her own struggle with feeling awkward about leaving Borneo for the big city of Kuala Lumpur, where her life would begin to change quickly. A lot of um, the elements that I write from are based on nature, but it's, it's really not intentional at all. I guess, you know, that's how the songs chose to write themselves. Um, but the fact of the matter is, like, that's where my inspiration is most fertile is when I'm in, you know, this sort of climate, when there's stillness and calmness with nothing but the sounds of ants crawling or birds or crickets or cicadas. all about settle down please don't yell or shout the landlord he lives downstairs will get evicted please don't be too loud z's father moved the family to kuala lumpur when she was 12. she says living in a concrete jungle was quite a shock Concrete plays a big role in one of her current songs, a song she plays here on an instrument called a sape lele, a cross between a sape, Borneo's indigenous lute, and the ukulele. Um, Concrete Wall is basically a song about um, couples' qualms, trouble in paradise moments. And that song is just basically about letting it all out, just laying it all, you know, real on the table and, you know, remaining hopeful at the same time because that song, it has no conclusion. Rainforest, thank you so much. The Malaysian government is promoting Ziavi as a role model for young people in the country, even as an ambassador of the state of Sarawak. Google Ziavi's name and your search will come up with an endless list of other young Malaysians and even dance troops covering and dancing to her songs. I know, that's so crazy. Um, And it's great because, you know, covers are basically your own interpretations, interpretation of, um, you know, somebody's art. So to to know that you are not alone in, you know, what you went through is, for me, just very rewarding. With two albums out and a third in the works, Z gives the YouTube generation of musicians something to aspire to. 
for the world. I'm Maria Bacalopolo in Sarawak, Borneo. I want this music. ZIV gave reporter Maria Bacalopolo an exclusive performance of Concrete Wall from the floor of a Sarawak jungle. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman on Twitter, at Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.